Happy New Year, everyone. Before we get to our lucky 13th episode, I wanted to apologize for the unannounced hiatus we took as we finished out the year at the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. 2017 was a big year for the Foundation, and if you want to know all that we did, please check out alhirschfeldfoundation.org news. We did end the year in, Los An- in the Los Angeles area for a series of pop-up galleries, and it was wonderful to meet up with some listeners of this podcast. Thank you for your comments, accolades, and advice. We are also delighted to have this new episode in a new year begin with a new theme song by the legendary pianist Dick Hyman. This wonderful piece is titled Three or More Ninas. To learn more about Dick and his music, please visit dickhyman.com. You can see the debut of the complete piece at the screening room on our website. Now, as Irving Berlin famously wrote, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Hirschfeld Century Podcast. I'm Katherine Eastman, the Archives Manager of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. And I'm David Leopold, the Creative Director. Yes. And we are here with a new episode, back again. Yes, on a subject that is, I think, on everybody's mind. It seems like this last year, this has been on everyone's mind. And that subject is politics. Yes. Which you don't usually think about politics when you think about Hirschfeld. And it's true. There's not... Well, there's more than you might imagine, I guess. There's actually a lot of political drawings in his career, or drawings that could be considered political. Yes, and it's, but it's not what we think of when we think of Al Hirschfeld. No, in fact, he really never used his platform uh, to promote any sort of didactic uh, message. Right. Um, it was all about the drawing for him. As a young man, he actually did do political work, straight out political work. Yeah. Um, and we're going to look at that. Uh, so what were his politics as a young man? Yes, what were they, David? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, oh, I know it's a bad word to say these days, but uh, it had to do with Russia. That's true. Um, he really believed that communism was a great thing. And I think a lot of people of the time did. Sure. He, he believed that everybody should have a, a role. Uh, everybody should be paid equally. Everybody should uh, have a job. Right. That that it was a collective uh, thing that we were in. He saw America as a collective. Um, he never joined the party. I asked him once if he ever joined the Communist Party, and he said no. He thought it was a uh, lonely hearts club for pimply faced kids. <laughs> so, which is exactly what Al Hirschfeld would have said. Uh, yeah. And he wasn't a joiner by nature. Uh, he had political ideals, but he was always just in the party of Al Hirschfeld. Right. And now he, he was married to his first wife, Flo. Yes. Who was a showgirl in Earl Carroll's Vanities. Correct. He was, uh, she was, uh, she starred with Peggy Hopkins Joyce, uh, who was uh, famous for being famous and for having six husbands. Gotcha. Um, he married her despite the fact that she was completely different from him. Uh, she was a Broadway showgirl who liked to party. And while Al Hirschfeld liked to have a good time, he liked to work first mm. and foremost. He liked right. to draw. And he sort of never got over his sort of Midwest upbringing. He told me later he didn't like to see a woman get drunk. Mm. And when I read his letters that he wrote to Flo from his first trip to Paris in 1925, um, I was amazed at how different they seemed, that he was sort of telling her to stay away from this Broadway crowd, you know, and, uh, you know, just the hard drinking, hard partying types. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I finally said to him, you seem so different. Uh, How did you, why did you marry her? Right. He said, because everyone told me not to. That's a good enough reason. And classic (laughs) Al Hirschfeld. Yeah. Um, But when they got married, they decided to honeymoon in Russia. Right. 
You know, uh, and you couldn't go straight to Russia, so they stopped in Paris for a visa. Correct? He had a he still had a studio there that he had signed a lease, an eight year lease on in 1925 in the mm-hmm. fall of 1925. So uh, they had a place to stay. Um, he actually did drawings when he was there. In the Hirschfeld Century book, we uh, have one of the drawings he did from the Ambassador Club, right? With right. Sidney Bechet and Buster West and uh, Noble Sissel, right? Um, a really uh, a, a, nice a wonderful one. drawing. Yeah. I like that one. Um, but when uh, Al went to uh, Russia, he said in an interview uh, maybe 50 years later, I was very interested in the whole of the Soviet Union and in communism at the time, which I thought was the salvation of the world then. Nothing happened in that time that I was there to dis- disillusion me, actually. Mm-hmm. So he really, he, he loved it there. Um, so he, what year was this? This was uh, 1928. He okay. got there and he spent about five months there. Um, he had been made an international correspondent by the Herald Tribune, and he sent back articles on the Russian theater and film scene. Right. Um, sometimes the articles would be bylined to his wife, but mm-hmm. he told me that he wrote the articles. He was just trying to boost her along, and I think he wanted to have sort of a writer-artist combo right. um, that he would actually later achieve with S.J. Perlman. Mm. <laughs> uh, but um, while he was there, he and as it's probably very well known at this point, he did write a book about his entire experiences there that was lost by his publisher when he returned from um, from his trips, right. from his travels. So sad. And uh, he hadn't made a copy mm. of either the drawings or the, or the manuscript. So we don't know what, what it is. That's why I have a backup on my hard drive, and that's why I back up my hard drive to another hard drive. <laughs> Always well, back up your stuff. Uh, if... <laughs> Then a backup would have been either him retyping it or a carbon copy. And uh, it was just, he was 25 years old. Yeah. He was a a young person. He, I don't think he had thought it all the way through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even though he was doing great at that time, he didn't think it all the way through. But politics. Yes. Back to politics. Yes. yes. Um, So he was, he was there uh, in Russia for the apex of Russian theater film scene oh definitely yeah definitely and really of the communist culture in its first flush right you know what he saw there as he said didn't dissuade him at all from his political leanings Mm -hmm. and well russia was much better off than it had been 12 years earlier right under the czar i mean the the difference was significant and he saw it as potentially a model for the united states Mm -hmm. um he was not an anarchist he didn't come back you know distributing pamphlets or anything like that. But uh, he really thought, there, as, as he said, there was nothing I- about communism that he had seen in practice that dissuaded him from believing that it was uh, uh, a potent form of uh, 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 politics. Mm-hmm. Um, he did uh, two uh, lithographs while he was there, um, r- the Russian worker and a railway station um, that are... Very fine works, very different from his theater work and, yes, his, and his film work. Uh, lithography, which we'll go into in, in later in the podcast, mm-hmm. would be a very potent outlet for his political ideals. Right. Um, and though as much as he enjoyed Russia when he went there in 1928, when he returned uh, eight years later for the Russian Theater Festival with Brooks Atkinson, he was terribly disappointed. Mm. And what had changed? I think everything had changed. Or nothing. Uh, well, you know, when he was there before, all the officials were very normal people. When he got back there in 1936, he described it to me as uh, their metal, their chests were covered with medals. He said they looked like Saul Steinberg drawings. Right. And uh, he, the productions that he had thought were incredible in 1928 turned out to be literally the exact same productions. Right. And that's why I said that nothing had changed. Right. With the theater film scene, it was all what was being done, you know. Sure. Eight years earlier. And so what had been fresh now seemed very stale. Right, right. Uh, and, 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 and I think it changed his opinion of communism mm-hmm. in general. And in fact, later on, he would talk, he would later include the communists as one of the things that ruined Bali. Mm. You know, uh, he, he felt that the, they had sort of overrun the island in 1947. Oh, wow. So um, that was a, a little bit of an awakening for him. Sure. Um, now, Back at home, he he didn't rush to do political work, and, and, and but 
one could argue that the work that he was doing for newspapers and uh, films uh, were were very fit to his political ideals perfectly because they were art that was available to everyone. Right. They were printed on cheap paper and everybody could afford to get a newspaper. I know that Whoopi Goldberg later would say that that's why she loved Hirschfeld, you know, the drawing so much was that they could afford it. Yeah, anybody it, could access it. You didn't have to her. go to the museum or... You could just pass by uh, theaters or see it on the side of buildings. Right. His posters, posters were everywhere. Right, right. Uh, but he started doing more political work in 1933 uh, when he started to co-publish a magazine called Americana hmm. with his friend uh, Alexander King. Interesting. Yeah, it was a satiric magazine. It wasn't strictly political, but the satire was, it was graphic satire oh, that often had a political bent. Mm -hmm. uh, they were really one of the first uh, publications that used, uh, would manipulate photographs for humor. Oh, gotcha. Now, is this the same magazine he did, the Jimmy Durante and Joseph Stalin? No, that was for Life magazine. Oh, okay. But it was yeah. that same kind of idea. Right. Okay. So and what it, what I'm talking about is something different, and I'll post it in the show notes so you can see now. But it's where, you know, with a few strokes of Al Hirschfeld's pen, he could transform a photograph of someone into someone else. Right. That they might not have really even looked like, but just a few little changes can make them look like something completely different. It famously got him banned from The New Yorker Correct. when he turned uh, Howard Ross into Joseph Stalin. Yeah, it's a good one. It really does look like Joseph Stalin. But it also goes to the heart, uh, I think I've said this before, is it, it goes to the heart of what Hirschfeld was about, that mm -hmm. it wasn't about necessarily anatomical distortion. Right. That it was the idea that Jimmy Durante had a big nose. Right. His nose was maybe bigger than the average guy's, but it wasn't so big. Right, right, right. But once you made it the focus, <laughs> yeah. every, it seemed bigger than it actually yes. was. Uh, so in this magazine with Alex, uh, Alex King, um, it came out uh, every month. Mm. Um, they had a lot of wonderful artists who were given a page. And as Al told me that if the artist didn't submit anything that month for the magazine, the page went blank with their name oh, on that's it. that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but this is when he starts doing much more uh, overt, in fact, perhaps some of the most overt political work Definitely. of his career. Uh, he did uh, a piece, a lot of it was anti-Nazi, yeah, anti-fascism. so early if it's 1933. Right. Kind they're of ahead of his time. Right. They're very <laughs> conscious of what's going on mm -hmm. in Germany. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the artists that they bring over to uh, contribute to the magazine is George Groves. Mm -hmm. uh, when George Groves comes to America, the two guys who meet him on the uh, at the dock are Al Hirschfeld and Alexander King. Oh, that's funny. Uh, but Hirschfeld would do not only uh, anti-Nazi and anti-fascist uh, cartoons, he would also poke fun at uh, FDR and his cabinet. Uh, there is a very wonderful piece in which he took a piece of wood and carved a wooden nickel yes. for William Hartman Wooden, who was the Treasury Secretary under FDR. And it's a real, it's like a real piece of wood it is a real piece yeah, of wood he, he kept it on top of his file cabinet as sort of like a paperweight <laughs> for decades it's now That's in the collection great. of a library of congress <laughs> but and what they used in the magazine they took a photograph mm -hmm, of it and mm -hmm. they just had it in the but it, it, it's a wonderful caricature that hirschfeld did in wood as yeah. opposed to ink that's interesting uh, so but there were also things like inflation which showed a uh, what would obviously be a fat man's head on right. a skeleton body. Right. Um, and that was done in November 1933. Um, and eventually the magazine was bought out by uh, um, Vanity Fair, who oh, saw it as competition. Hmm. And uh, they were brought into the fold of Vanity Fair. Uh, Al contributed one piece, and soon thereafter, Vanity Fair folded. Oh, gosh. Uh, because of the Depression. Well, Al thought that it was because Frank Crowenshield, the mm -hmm. uh, editor of uh, Vanity Fair, would not accept the Depression. Mm. He refused to cover it in his magazine. Mm. And uh, that could only work for so long. Right. When it's such an all-encompassing thing in America, yeah. if you're a popular magazine, you have to address the issue. Right, right. He would continue to do political work, um, not for Vanity Fair, but for the new masses. Right. Uh, which was probably the most articulate publication of the left. Now, was this a communist magazine? 
it was not a communist magazine, but it had strong communist leanings. Okay. Uh, it had it been might around as well for the, been. it started off as the masses and it had been revived gotcha. in the early 30s as the new masses. Mm. It was a very, very important uh, magazine for the left, uh, for left thinkers, for left artists, uh, probably second only to uh, the Daily Worker. Oh, wow. Which was the okay. Communist Party yeah. uh, newspaper. So it was very close. Very Yes. <laughs> and he started off, he did covers. I think the very first mm-hmm. thing he ever did for them was a, a, a cover for Martha Graham. Right. It was. Uh, but uh, he did a lot of cartoons for them over the years. This is mm-hmm. 36, 37, 38. Um, again, uh, anti-fascist, right. uh, anti-Nazi. Uh, there was also one called The Isolationist, which mm-hmm. showed a fellow sitting in an easy chair next to a globe in which he's cut off half the globe. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's sort of attacking Americans who wanted mm. to, uh, thought they would could stay out of the war. It's Europe's war. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, he goes up, he, he, st- he does work there till uh, 1939. Mm. Um, and it, in fact, it's a cartoon that ends his relationship with the new masses. He does a drawing of Father Conklin, uh, who was a uh, uh, a radio preacher who had very vir- virulent um, nationalist, uh, mm-hmm. racist uh, leanings, um, always asking people for money. And Hirschfeld right. was appalled that his father was listening and sending money in Ugh, too. We've all been there. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> Happy to say, my father. And mother never have embarrassed me politically. That's good. <laughs> uh, but he did this drawing of Father Conklin, which showed him with uh, swastikas etched in his uh, eyeglasses and uh, right. a little sort of Hitler-looking like mm. mouse on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And he was holding the Ten Commandments, and there was a one at the bottom, the Eleventh Commandment, which was, why are you congressman? Mm. And Hirschfeld really unloaded all of his yeah, bile towards like Father it. Coughlin. And he sent it down to New Masses uh, thinking they're going to just run this. This is yeah. great. And uh, they didn't run it. Mm. And uh, he called up and he said, what's the problem? They said, we have to come up and speak to you, Hirschfeld. Uh-oh. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's exactly what he thought. Yeah. <laughs> well, they come, this group comes up to uh, Hirschfeld's studio and tries to make him see that they can't publish the... Uh, the cartoon because it would offend Catholic trade union, unionists, uh, which Hirschfeld thought was ridiculous. It was no more an attack on Catholicism right. uh, than anything else. And uh, it was obviously not that. And how could they be offended? And then he pointed out to them that, indeed, weren't they the people that said that there was no God, <laughs> that religion was the opiate of the masses? Yeah. Uh, that did not convince them, mm. and uh, not surprisingly, they did not convince Hirschfeld yeah. to change his opinion. Hirschfeld uh, would later say that the only thing he got out of the uh, evening was uh, a few pipe burns on his sofa. Mm. Um, and did was that uh, drawing ever run anywhere? Not, it was never run anywhere, mm. and uh, we only know about it because Hirschfeld describes mm-hmm. it in the world of Hirschfeld. Right. Um, but uh, he did, he didn't have it. It's somewhere. Some well check, check your attic. <laughs> check your attic, or somebody's <laughs> trash can. I'm not sure. Yeah. But Hirschfeld would later very uh, humorously write that it was that night he realized he was closer to Groucho Marx than to Karl Marx. Yes, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but he he was uh, simultaneously with doing new masses. He appeared in uh, Ken magazine, mm. which was a large format uh, pictorial political magazine that was short lived. But it was a, it may not have uh, gone on long, but it seems that everybody who read it was an important person. Mm. Uh, and uh, Hirschfeld did, uh, I think his probably his best cartoon was called Spain 1938, ran in May 1938. Mm. And it showed bulls sitting in the stands of a stadium as uh, Spaniards toradored I- I- each other. Oh, fine. Uh, so, I mean, he was really uh, <laughs> poking fun, alas, at the uh, Spanish Civil War. Right. Now, his most complex cartoon was his ambitious History of the American Communist Party that was done for, of all publications, Fortune magazine in November 1940. <laughs> that is kind of funny. It is an, a very, Oh, November very... 1940, that's when my granny was born. <laughs> 
I just realized. She is not featured in the cartoon. No. But uh, there are two granny-like figures in the cartoon at one point. It shows, it, it, it puts the American Communist Party as like a train. Yes, it's like a map slash train yeah. And the train starts off as this little pokey thing and a door <laughs> all, along the way becomes a streamliner right. and, and, and whatnot. And it, it, at one point it, it goes off the rails. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, it's, it has all these wonderful visual metaphor, mm-hmm. metaphors. It actually reminds me of like his map of Central Park. Right. Um, that's a, also very detailed drawing. Done around that's the same time. Similar. Yeah, yeah. They're very detailed. Very detailed. And this one is actually historically accurate. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, full Seems of, like he did a lot of research for it. He did a tremendous amount of research yeah. for it. And he was very proud of it. Mm. Uh, I remember uh, when he was doing a book called Art and Recollections from uh, Eight Decades, a Scribner's book in 1990. Mm. Alistair Cook was writing the foreword to it. And Al was very anxious to show off some of his work to Alistair Cook. Mm. And one of the very first pieces he showed him was this one, History of the American Communist Party. And what was his uh, response? Oh, Alistair Cook oh, loved he it because he okay. understood what was in it. He yeah. could look at the cartoon. You and I would have to, we, we would almost need an answer key right. <laughs> to know what, what all the happening. references to. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Alistair Cook knew right away. And it turned out that Alistair Cook had started off as a cartoonist. Oh, wow. So they had a real sort of mutual admiration society. Gotcha. Now, speaking of cartoons, you've been calling this political work cartoons, whereas we usually, you know, at the foundation, we usually shy away from saying Hirschfeld cartoons. We refer to them as drawings because that's what they are. Um, you know, they're caricatures, but they're drawings uh, first and foremost. But sure. we, you've been referring to these as cartoons. So is are you, when you use the word cartoon, are you referring to more um, the intent behind the drawing, behind the art, rather than the style that they're done in? Uh, yes, I would say so that. So is there like a, a um, what am I trying to say? Well, these are drawings that illustrate an idea. Right, and that's why you're using the term cartoon. Right, because uh, well, it's oftentimes the they also have a caption. Right, and we know that Hirschfeld didn't like captions. He would later say a caption on a drawing was a toe-curling admission of failure. <laughs> uh, but at this time, he, he I, and let the record show that mm-hmm. he was friends with many many cartoons sure sure he really loved their work he was like everybody else when he got the new yorker he looked at all the cartoons first uh oftentimes they were friends of his but he he loved a good cartoon he loved a good right. gag cartoon um and he was doing them because he thought this was the best way he could get his message across mm-hmm. you know the the point of view that he wanted to share this was the opportunity for him to do that um so almost all of these drawings have a caption, uh, a, a title at the top or a caption right. on the bottom um, that sort of gives you the punchline mm-hmm. of the cartoon, mm-hmm. um, even if it isn't always funny. Right. Uh, but he's using the title or the caption to uh, sort of illuminate the cartoon. Yeah, yeah, or steer you in the right direction of what it's all about. Right. But he, he would later come to say that if you were drawing uh, a woman knitting and the thing that she was knitting said Jewish consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, he thought that you had failed. Mm. Because if you have to tell people what it it's is. It's like explaining a joke. Right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. And so he was, uh, while he would become uh, less than enthusiastic about it for himself, mm-hmm. he continued to do it. Uh, when um, in the early 1940s, there was an afternoon newspaper that joined uh, New York's crowded newspaper scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called PM because it came out in the afternoon. Shocking. <laughs> and it was... It was an unusual newspaper in the fact that it accepted no advertising. Mm. It did not want to be swayed by advertisers. Uh, it, when it was originally published, it was actually stapled together like a magazine, uh-huh. but eventually it became more tabloid mm. uh, size. And it attracted a lot of writers and a lot of artists who liked its political ideals. Mm. And so uh, among the cartoonists that Hirschfeld, so Hirschfeld contributed cartoons. Uh, again, these are anti-fascist, right. uh, anti-German. Uh, he pokes fun also at figures like John L. Lewis, who was the head of the mine workers um, who called a coal strike uh, at the beginning in 1943, near the beginning of uh, World War II, mm-hmm. um, which he thought was unusual and he was not a fan of. Right. Um, 
but also, you know, he poked fun at Roosevelt and at Churchill. Uh, but uh, among the artists who were also contributing political cartoons to PM was Dr. Seuss, oh, Ted wow. Geisel. Uh, so there was. This was a place where artists could sort of go outside their usual zone mm -hmm. and do work. Again, I think that they felt that they were adding to the war effort. Right. You know, that they was were helping their way the to contribute. Effort. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Hirschfeld, to, to be clear, also aided the war, war effort uh, literally for the government in the sense that he would go uh, to um, see soldiers recuperating in hospitals mm. and he would go to their beds and do quick drawings of them Aww. and give them to them. I didn't know that. You never told me that, David. <laughs> That's so sweet. We have a copy of one That's of those That's so drawings. Bob Hope of him. <laughs> but it, it, so many stars like Bob Hope and, mm -hmm. and uh, Irving Berlin, these were all people, they were doing it out of true patriotic uh, enthusiasm. Right. They wanted to help their country. Mm -hmm. uh, Al Hirschfeld at the start of World War II was 38 years old. Mm. Um, a little right. bit he was too kind old. of that that in between generation right. that was too young for World War One and too old for World World War Two. Right. But still, want, still felt like they had to do something. Right. They wanted to do their part. Right. And he wasn't going to go into a factory and start making cannons or something like that. <laughs> he what he could do was what he did best and what people mm -hmm. wanted him to do. Mm -hmm. So he did a lot of drawings for uh, different army units. Mm. Uh, he worked with Billy Rose. Oh Billy, yeah. Billy Rose had had this idea. Uh, of uh, performing units right. uh, to entertain the troops. And his proposal to uh, the army was actually illustrated with Hirschfeld drawings. Right. Uh, we don't have those up on the website. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a feature on that at some time mm. in the future. That's a but good idea. it's uh, really wonderful. There's a fellow who's writing a biography of Billy Rose, which mm -hmm. we're looking forward to. Uh, and uh, he shared that with us. Yeah. So it was really terrific. Um, his final cartoon was in 1948 uh, for Collier's Magazine. I mean, PM, he did for uh, about a year or so in PM. Mm -hmm. And uh, as Hirschfeld told me, that he knew that PM would not last mm. because on the day that the Germans rolled into Paris, there was, he said, he told me that the front page of PM was about a kosher deli racket exposed. Oh, no. So, I mean, <laughs> he thought that they just had their priorities in the right. wrong place. Just like Vanity Fair. Right. You have and, to acknowledge uh, it. Yeah. Uh, and Hirschfeld will tell you that he closed many, many significant publications over the years. Including Collier's, which is what we're going to talk about next. Right. Uh, so Collier's in 1948, it's the fall of 1948, and they're convinced, along with just about every other pundit and uh, expert in the field, that Harry Truman is going to lose the 1948 presidential election. Right. There's a very famous photo of Truman holding up a paper that says, yeah. Dewey defeats Truman. Uh <laughs> Collier's had gone them one better and had had uh, organized and published an entire issue that they were going to release. Wait, it was already published? Oh, it was printed. It was oh, the whole oh, it was thing. printed. It was printed, but okay. it was not released. Okay, okay. Um, that was all about Dewey beating That's Truman. That's so funny. And they had asked Hirschfeld for a cartoon that is called Retreat from Washington, and it shows the Trumans moving out of the White House. Right. Although you never actually see the Trumans in the drawing, it's all the things that, mm. that we know would be in the Truman White House. And what would that be? Like a cowboy hat? Oh, there was, uh, uh, yeah, there was uh, modern art and, and okay, things like okay, that. Gotcha. It was it was an unusual drawing. when I We discovered it in a studio uh, around 1990, mm -hmm. and uh, it's published in the book, actually, that uh, Scribner's book. Um, and when, when I first saw it, I was like, what does this mean, retreat right. from Washington? And he proceeded to tell me the That's story funny. about doing this drawing right. and uh, it never being published. Aww. Now, I said I would talk about lithographs. Yes. I mean, the lithographs, wouldn't you agree, are a unique part of Hirschfeld's work? Definitely. They're very different from anything else he did, I right. think. Um, They're not they as are... concerned with line. No, definitely Much not. Much more about textures mm -hmm, and grayscale mm -hmm. and... And they're all very political. Yes. I Without mean, he, being overtly so. These are ones that you, mm, well, 
I think a lot of them you do have to kind of see the the title. It helps. Right. It's graphic satire. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's one of uh, an artist. Uh, it turns out he's in, out in front of the British Museum and he's got his artwork. He's sitting on the street or sitting on the sidewalk and his pieces are all lined up on a fence right next mm-hmm. to him. Our viewpoint is... Uh, as people are walking by, we can see a dog peeing on one of yeah. the canvases, and the title of the piece is "Art and Industry." Right, that's you cute. Know, so it's 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 really a wonderful one. Uh, even hit some of his earliest ones, uh, there was one called "The Hook Shop," mm-hmm. um, which is shows a brothel in Paris. Right. Um, and again, there's a there's definitely class distinctions there. Mm, interesting. Uh, as said, the t- the two that he produced uh, from his Russian trip, mm-hmm. it's a Soviet worker. Yep, very you know, similar to that Soviet worker drawing he did. Right. Yeah. Probably did the the drawing while he was there, and right. then would later come and do the mm-hmm. lithograph. And the Kharkov railroad station. Sure. Which is the same. So the piece that he did for Vanity Fair was actually a lithograph. Mm. It was called Nine All Men of the Supreme Court. Oh yes. And this was these nine Supreme Court justices, which Hirschfeld claimed were six hundred and seventy five years old. Yes, and now, you know, uh, we don't like to call Al Hirschfeld a liar. We really don't. But <laughs> I did the math. Okay. Okay? I did the math. In 1933, when this, this we're talking about the 1933 one? Uh, well, 1933, and he would later do a different version in yes, 1937. 37. So in 1933, all nine old men of the Supreme Court, their ages totaled 612, unless this drawing was published in December, because Brandeis, Brandeis. 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 Okay. Because Brandeis had a birthday in November. Everybody else was much more earlier in the year. So 612 or 613 years. Then I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, and I went and did the 1937 totals of those <laughs> same nine old men. I got 649 to 658, again, based on what month it was published and who had already had a birthday. Wow. So, you know, granted, he didn't have the benefit of Wikipedia like I did or, or an iPhone calculator, um, which I used and got this all very quickly. Um, but he did have 17 extra years, and I don't know where they came from. Um, in his defense, I don't <laughs> think he always put the same amount of years on every... Sometimes he would... often Because I, I feel like we've seen... Two lithographs with two different inscriptions. Right. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Yeah. He would often inscribe the pieces with the judges' names, the justices' yeah. names, and he would add their ages. Yes. Uh, but of course, nobody was looking for no one, uh, accuracy. Where in that. would you get that? That would take so long to get that information. Yes, at that time, it would have been. Uh, <laughs> uh, very so much I so. feel he was very close, but I feel like it might have been like a guesstimate. Right. <laughs> so, but I did the research for all of you at home, so don't worry. I'm always well, like so guys. many things in a Hirschfeld drawing, it appears to be accurate, um, and it's the effect is what yes. is important. Right, right. Because what is it about these nine old men? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, what the Supreme Court of 1933 was comprised of largely conservative justices who seemed intent on blocking the progress of Roosevelt's New Deal. Mm. Uh, FDR, who had uh, won the largest landslide election, he had introduced legislation that would allow him to appoint a new member of the Supreme Court for each justice over 70 mm. years old. Uh, since six of the nine justices were over 70, this change would, quote, pack, unquote, the court mm. uh, for, with Roosevelt Democrats. And it did not pass. Interesting. But packing the court was something that Roosevelt was accused of, and Mm. accurately so. And in fact, if you go to the Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, New York, and they have a little display on packing the court, Mm -hmm. one of the things they have is Hirschfeld's Nine All Men of the Supreme Court uh, lithograph. Right, right. So they think it was, uh, it it sort of hit the nail on the head. It was close enough, even if it wasn't entirely Mm -hmm. accurate. And this is the one where they are on a diagonal almost. Yes. And they're like in the clouds. Right. So the first one that he did for Vanity Fair in November 1933 showed the justices in a straight Straight line at at their... uh, uh, Chambers? No, at their desk. Oh, okay. Is chambers Um, the right word? Chambers would be the right word if they were in them, but they (laughs) weren't in them. Okay. (laughs) 
That was close. So is platypus the right word if you're talking about those animals, but it uh, doesn't make it any more accurate in this situation. Right. Uh, in 1937, we in his sketchbook, actually uh, the sketchbook is now in the collection of the Library of Congress, but he had originally envisioned showing the judges in the actual courtroom. Mm. Uh, but by the time he made the lithograph, he had taken away all the sort of back drop mm-hmm. of the courtroom and have them in clouds right. on a diagonal sort of like they're a star chamber right and uh really it's a really wonderful piece one that he was justifiably very proud yeah it's of. a very nice piece so his final print of the 1930s was his strongest political statement mm-hmm. in printmaking yeah. it was called peace in our time and it was printed soon after Br- the british entered world war ii and it alluded to uh, neville chamberlain's famous phrase upon returning from an attempt to appease germany uh, it showed Chamberlain addressing a bombed-out parliament building where all the members of parliament are wearing gas masks. Mm, yeah, it's very powerful. Uh, when there was actually a bombing of parliament, Hirschfeld took the image that she had just finished. Mm. He took it to the New York Times because he thought, this is real right. op-ed work. Right. Uh, and he took it to his editor, uh, Lester Markle, who told him that... Um, this was a communist work because it was lithography. Mm. That lithography was uh, meant that you were communist and the Times would not publish it. Because, then they said it was communist because it could be mass produced. Right. Right. And uh, they suggested the new masses, which Hirschfeld had already been contributing to. Mm. And indeed, Hirschfeld took it to uh, the new masses, which printed it as a double-page spread. Oh. This is the last piece he published in... Uh, in New Masses, mm. because the next one he would do would be Father the Father Con- Conklin. Gotcha. Um, years later, though, it's funny. The British uh, war effort uh, had a – there, there was a fundraiser in New York mm-hmm. for the British war effort. And the British asked to reproduce Hirschfeld's piece in our time in the program. And Hirschfeld, of course, was delighted and allowed it. And when he got a copy of the program, he went over to the Times and showed it to Lester Markle – to sort of say, it's not communist. Right. And Markle's response was, who'd have thunk it? The the British are communists too. <laughs> That's funny. So he wouldn't give in. No. All right. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is the American Mercuries. Oh, and that's yeah. originally what I wanted this episode to be on. And then we said, well, why don't we she just do it? a lot inc- of pull in this. Yeah. <laughs> and then you said, well, why don't we just do it all in politics? So we'll expand it. American Mercury was a little TV guide digest size magazine that featured a lot of political articles and artwork. It had been started in the 20s by H.L. Mencken and Mm. George Jean Nathan. Um, But sometime, I don't know the exact uh, history of it, it had been bought by Larry Spivak, I think, in the late 30s or early 40s. And it got actually more political Mm -hmm. and more sort of current events uh, related. Um, And in 1943... They, he started to have Hirschfeld do covers each month, mm. every month, yeah. uh, of usually of world political leaders or American political leaders right. or political figures. And uh, the first one was uh, a New Hampshire governor who uh, uh, leverit uh, Slattenstall. I mean, these <laughs> no, names you Saltenstall. can't... Saltenstall. Saltenstall. Yeah. I'm sorry. I think these are names that S.J. Perlman would have loved. And <laughs> he would have. They have made up. I yeah, just, that's a good one. <laughs> he was a senator for more than uh, 20 years, and he was a well-liked mediating force in the Republican Party. Hmm. And he actually was the only member of the Republican Senate leadership to vote for the censure of Joseph McCarthy. Hmm. Uh, but in 1943, he was still a governor of New Hampshire, and uh, he obviously had designs on doing something more. Mm. And so he was featured on the cover of American Mercury. Nice. And over the next three years in which Hirschfeld's drawings appeared, and when I say drawings, they were actually paintings. Yes, they're gouache um, paintings. Very nice. Very vivid. Where he, he does his sort of signature style where he models it in paint. Right, right. Um, it's, not, it's not dependent on line so much, but mm-hmm. uh, Just uh, like paint. the TV Guide drawings. Very much like mm-hmm. the TV Guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even the which Collier's would, Which would come t- about 10 years after this. Right. Um, but among the cover subjects were uh, Fiorella LaGuardia. The Ellen, airport guy. Mayor of New York, thank you very much. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt, 
Chiang Kai Shek, Madame Chiang Kai Shek, mm. Eisenhower, Churchill, De Gaulle, Stalin, Gandhi, uh, Dean Acheson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was even some classic graphic satire yeah. like uh, Claude Pepper, Senator Claude Pepper of Florida, who his is... His face is, or his head is the shape of Florida. Right. It's great. It's a good And one. it looks just like him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a great one of Whitaker Chambers mm-hmm. who was uh, uh, become famous uh, for uh, being a Russian spy and secreting out microfilm in a hollowed out pumpkin. What? Yes, it's That's all true. That's so Man in the High Castle. Oh, they, where do you think these things come from? Uh, so Chambers is shown, his head is like a pumpkin, a pumpkin with the top sort of askew and there's there's microfilm coming oh out gosh. of it. my um, gosh. And then there's John L. Lewis, yeah. uh, this, as I said, the head of the United Mine Workers. And his eyeballs are little piles of coal. coal. and sh- shovel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really great Cute. piece. And uh, the Claude Pepper and John L. Lewis ones, those were featured in the Hirschfeld Century exhibition. Sure. Yeah. Um, Hirschfeld's work appeared in America, on American Mercury mm-hmm. uh, from 1943 uh, all the way through 1946. Um, in January of 1947, he leaves to uh, Hirschfeld leaves to spend nine months traveling around the country, traveling around the country, covering the world mm-hmm. with S.J. Perlman, and yet. January, February, and March on American Mercury uh, had covers by Hirschfeld. I mean, he he had done a bunch of work before he left. Didn't want to up and leave him. No, and in fact, (laughs) through 1947, it would have been Mm -hmm. hard to know that Hirschfeld was gone because his work was appearing not only in uh, on on the cover of American Mercury, but in Seventeen magazine, right? uh, In movie posters, Uh, it wasn't appearing in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. uh, But other than that, uh, it's everywhere else. (laughs) But perhaps his greatest cover, he, he would also, uh, by the way, he would come back in 1949 and start doing covers again for them uh, that started off as just sort of spot drawings on the cover, yes. but eventually returned to full color covers. Right. Um, so that was all 49 and 1950. Mm-hmm. His greatest cover, though, w- uh, political cover, was the one and only one he did for The Nation magazine mm. in November 1944 of FDR. Right. Uh, showing the victory sign. He's got like stars in his eyes. Stars in his eye. I feel like there are stripes somewhere. Oh yeah, there's. (laughs) It's a wonderful piece. He had done uh, something similar for American Mercury in color, but this is just in black and Mm. white, and it was so vivid that FDR loved it and invited Hirschfeld to come down to the White House. Hirschfeld gave him the drawing, and unfortunately for Hirschfeld, uh, it uh, Roosevelt appeared to be human. Mm. He had gone there. Uh, so I mean, he was so he so admired Roosevelt right. that you know he kind of felt he was godlike. Yeah. And when he got down to the Oval Office, it turns out that Roosevelt put on his pants just like everybody else. Right. And uh, he lost his glasses at one point, and mm-hmm. his cigarette came out of his fell out of his cigarette holder, and he started posing and profile for Hirschfeld, and Hirschfeld thought that was just the phoniest thing that you could mm. do. And he left there thinking, well, I'm glad I didn't meet Lincoln. Right. <laughs> you know, so it was... That's funny. Uh, but while he was there, FDR asked if he could use the drawing uh, on the on the bow of the, uh, of the USS Franklin D. Roosevelt. Right. And so Hirschfeld's drawings appeared. Is it still there? Uh, I don't know. We I don't know check. if the, the USS FDR is still. Is, is still around. Mm. Uh, but for the time in 1944, it yeah. had a it had a Hirschfeld on its bow. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, Hirschfeld used to say, "If you live long enough, everything happens." Mm-hmm. Well, that is one of the things he's talking yeah. about. <laughs> he had a sandwich named after him, but when your artwork gets to be on a what destroyer, was the sandwich? No, I don't know about the sandwich. You don't know the sandwich? He told me no. a sandwich was named after him, and I believe him. Let's think about what would be on it. It would be a Reuben, wouldn't it? It would be on pumpernickel bread with mayonnaise, mm. so it would be black and white. <laughs> That's true. And maybe um, apple pancakes. No, apple pancakes. <laughs> That's an Algonquin story. We'll tell that sometime. Yeah, we'll tell. We'll do an Algonquin <laughs> episode. Um, so I, I think we skipped over, or maybe we just haven't gotten there yet. Um, I'm remembering the Eisenhower inauguration. Is that correct? Oh, the yeah. The drawing he did, and it was in the style of Miguel Covarrubias. Correct. And, uh, 19... Was that for Collier's? That was for Vanity Fair. Oh, okay. okay. So Vanity Van... Fair got his back. It back was from the revived. Dead. <laughs> and they got Hirschfeld, which meant they probably didn't last. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
but it was Eisenhower's inauguration. They came to Hirschfeld, and he did it as an homage to his mm-hmm. friend mm-hmm. who had famously done a painting of Roosevelt's inauguration. Gotcha. Right. And it's done very much in the style yeah. of Coburubius. It's very different. I, I view it as very flat. Yes. Um, as opposed to the Hirschfeld work, which is very um, loose feeling and, you know, modeled. Right. Um, but Where it really has a, yes. almost a th- three dimensions. Yes. Yes. Hirschfeld loved the piece, uh, the Eisenhower inauguration, mm-hmm. and it was hanging in one of his bathrooms. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, there were two American Mercury covers in his downstairs bathroom. Really? Which one? The Gaul and Churchill. Oh, those are good ones. Yeah. The, the regular Churchill or the, the Churchill, Churchill self-portrait? Okay. Yeah. My favorite American Mercury is the Churchill painting his self-portrait. Oh, sure. Um, and that's really hard to find on eBay. So if you guys find it, just send it over Please to send me. it to I'll, the I'll Alfred Foundation. I'll give you your, my address. <laughs> Well, his political work didn't stop with that. Although, now, these were not, the, the covers for American Mercury were not overt political statements. They were portraits. Right. No, they were definitely portraits. Um, they may include some elements of their personality, right. but right. they were portraits. They like were Stalin no- has a hammer and sickle. Right. Um, like there's little, and like the John L. Lewis with the coal, like there are little kind of nods. Right. To what's going on, but it, there's no statement really made. It's Yeah, it's not a big uh, right. overt statement. It's sort of poking fun at these famous figures. Right. Um, but in uh, after uh, Hirschfeld had uh, um, been commissioned by Colliers to do a retreat from Washington in 1948 and it didn't run, the following year they must have thought, well, Hirschfeld's got something. Let's get him on our editorial page. Mm. And the very first one. This is he, the Times saying this. No, this is the this is Colliers. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, this is this is Colliers in 1949. Asked him to uh, his first piece for their editorial page was the tax resistor Vivian Kellums. Oh, right. She's holding a sign, mm-hmm. and she's got collage headlines behind her. Uh, very famous for not wanting to pay income tax. Gotcha. Um, he did uh, a handful of pieces over the f- next year. Probably his best work was his last one for Collier's uh, on their editorial page, which was in July 1950. It was Senator Joseph McCarthy extinguishes the flame of the Statue of Liberty. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. And I think it gives us some sense of what a kind of work he might have done on Father Conklin. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 very hard hitting. Yeah, it is. Even if it's fairly simple, it's a pretty bold statement. Yes. Yeah. And 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 very bold statement for the time because mm-hmm. to criticize McCarthy at that time, right? Well, even even as people started to think maybe this wasn't so great, mm-hmm. was to open yourself up to being blacklisted. Right. Uh, and even after he, of course, even after he stopped supplying uh, drawings for the editorial page, he would go on to supply drawings in the regular magazine and uh, uh, an appointment with O'Hara and mm-hmm. for different articles all the way through 1956. Mm-hmm. His next time on an editorial page comes 20 years later, really, or uh, a little bit more. And of all places, it's the New York Times. Mm. Uh, between 1971 and 1973, he was a regular presence on the op-ed page of the New York Times. Uh, he did uh, drawings of Nixon, Spiro Agnew, who was oh, called yeah, the master of the exploded hyperbole. Is that the one with the stuff coming out of his head? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Chief Justice Warren E. Berger, mm-hmm. who's got thumbs up and thumbs yep. down. Uh, there's he did international figures like uh, Prince Norodom Sihanouk and uh, the isolated Mao Zedong, who's shown on the Great Wall of, uh, of China. I, I definitely know who Prince Norodom Sihanouk is. Not That's a joke. It's <laughs> a bad joke. Okay, keep going. Look it up. <laughs> Uh, now, again, these were not editorial cartoons, but sort of graphic summations of his subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and although he wouldn't remain on the editorial page uh, for much longer, he continued to do political work for uh, the Times. Yeah. Um, in 1976, both presidential conventions were mm-hmm. held in New York. And not surprisingly, the Times did a special section for each convention. Right. And on the front of each of these sections was a Hirschfeld drawing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the Democrats, it was Jimmy Carter walking down the street in a ticker tape parade. And for the Republicans, 
It was a, like a boxing, boxing match, match. Yeah. between yeah. Uh, Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan. Mm. And in the crowd, there's all kinds of people, mm-hmm. some that we can recognize. And there's a little Alan Hirschfeld and Dolly yeah, Haas. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's a great piece. Um, in 1980, uh, they for their presidential coverage, he did drawings of many of the uh, candidates for the party nominations, like Ted Kennedy, Jerry Brown, Bob Dole, John Connolly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1984, he drew Reagan and Bush. Mm. In 1988, again on the op-ed page of the Times, uh, during the Democratic National Convention, he did a drawing of Dukakis, uh, Lloyd Benton, and Jesse Jackson at gotcha. the Democratic National Convention. Fun. And then he also did um, he did a drawing in 1968 for the nation's business that were all of the Democratic candidates. Yeah, that was a magazine. and, and No, it was Democrat and Republican Oh, it candidates. was because Ronald Reagan's in it. I'm oh, yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know why I thought that. Um, and in 1988, though, he just drew the Democratic candidates. Gotcha. That's what uh, I was thinking. As a fundraiser. I saw DNC and I, I on our notes and I just, I <laughs> full steamed ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, the only other president he drew as much as FDR, because he drew a, a number of drawings of FDR mm-hmm. over the years, was, oddly enough, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, his first drawing was the inaugural gala. Right. Uh, very uh, very well-known famous. drawing that was mm-hmm. later published as a limited edition etching, mm-hmm. uh, the original of which was given to Johnson. In uh, mm-hmm. He was uh, Hirschfeld and his family were invited down to the Oval Office. Right. I tell the story in the Hirschfeld Century. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy yeah. hour that he spends with LBJ where he listens to uh, Martin Luther King calling from uh, the bridge at Selma. Right. Uh, now, do you think that drawing's still at the White House? I don't think it's still at the White House. It might be in the Johnson uh, Library. Mm. Something to... Yeah. In our spare time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and then there's the cute little book, My Year in the White House Doghouse, which features LBJ. It's kind of forgettable. Very forgettable. <laughs> there are only a, there are only like four or five drawings, and the best one is LBJ kind of cradling these two dogs next to him. I think it's a collie and something else. Yeah, like a shepherd. Yeah. Uh, yes. So um, his work on LBJ is nowhere near as distinguished as his work. No, on no, FDR. no, definitely. <laughs> and uh, probably the last presidential uh, candidate that he drew and sort of involved in the campaign was in 2000 when uh, Bill Bradley ran against Al Gore for the Democratic nomination. And uh, he was asked to do a drawing of Bill Bradley that I guess they auctioned off or something like that. It was Mm -hmm. used to to promote New York events. And so he did that. He he thought Bill Bradley was pretty good. Um, I'm sure he supported Gore in the the general Mm -hmm. election. Mm. Um, And then, of course, you know, it's not like theater and film did not have any political Definitely. Uh, work in it. In fact, there was a lot of it, especially in the 30s mm-hmm. uh, when he really got started. Well, all those group theater drawings. All the group theaters. Yeah. Uh, of the I Sing, right. you know, the Gershwin, uh, George Kaufman musical mm-hmm. about uh, the presidency and the White House. Uh, he drew that. There was I'd Rather Be Right, which was a Kaufman and Hart, Rogers and Hart musical fantasy Mm. about uh, FDR and uh, this young couple wants to get married, but he needs to get work. And so FDR is in there. FDR, by the way, is played by George M. Cohan. Of course. I think it's the first time a sitting president is is lampooned on a Broadway stage. Oh, that's funny. Interesting. Uh, And then um, probably... The most overt political work he did was for the Federal Theater Project, mm-hmm. um, which was established in 1935, and it was an ambitious relief program for theater professionals. Uh, it was successful because it produced high-quality productions and employed as many uh, – it employed really so many and entertained even more. Mm-hmm. But it was also controversial. Uh, its productions criticized Congress and the Supreme Court, and many would say that it spoke in a left-wing voice. Uh, he drew many of their productions, I mean, a wide range over their four-year period that it was around. Um, probably the most famous was in 1937 for Mark Blitzenstein's uh, political allegory, the musical The Cradle Will Rock. Are you sure it wasn't Jan- 1938? It was January 1938. <laughs> you were correct. Yes! William, she gets one this week. <laughs> Up to two. A- anyway, the uh, the... This was a show that was produced by and directed by Orson Welles. Mm. 
and on opening night, the government thought it was too controversial, and they padlocked the theater. Wow! They would not let any. They wouldn't let any of the cast, the crew in, the producers or directors, and the whole first night audience, you know, came to the theater expecting to see a show, and the theater was padlocked. Isn't that illegal? <laughs> it is a matter of some contention. It's uh, okay. uh, what what the government could do, mm-hmm. uh, and. Well, the, uh, Orson Welles and producer John Hausman were not going to be deterred. They found another theater that was empty. They convinced the entire opening night crowd to walk with them up to the theater. And uh, everybody sat in their seats. And Orson Welles got on stage with Mark Blitzenstein at a piano. And as Hirschfeld says, at a given signal, Mr. Mr. Blitzstein struck the first chord of his revolutionary score when, to his astonishment and Mr. Wells, no less than the audiences, an actor from the cast stood up from his seat somewhere in the balcony and sang his rehearsed role. Mr. Mr. Blitzstein had only to play the music, Mr. Wells only to stand there dumbfounded and delighted as actor after actor scattered throughout the house arose in his place and played his respective part. It was a memorable night in the theater. Sounds like it. Yeah. uh, Hirschfeld was very, that was a remarkable night, Uh, one that he would remember. And uh, a drawing, his drawing of the production, which we don't know when it appeared. Uh, It's really one of the few drawings that we we know of. The original drawing is now in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery. And they came to me at one point and said, well, this drawing appeared when the... um, the show opened, but that was 1938, and it has a Nina in it. Right. How is that possible? Mm-hmm. Well, the fact is, I think he added the Nina after the fact. He right. put it all on the sheet music right. at Blitzstein's uh, piano. So um, it's a wonderful piece, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a great night in the theater yeah. for Hirschfeld. I mean, for Hirschfeld to say it was a memorable night, you know it was a memorable night. Uh, he would also draw uh, the International Ladies Garment Workers Review uh, of Pins and Needles mm-hmm. with music by his good friend Harold Rome. And then, you know, he drew the Louisiana Purchase in the 40s and the Crucible in the 50s and Hair and Assassin, and Angels in America, uh, 1776. One of my favorites. He drew it twice. Yep. He drew the original production which just showed the leads. And then when he, uh, when the revival in the 1990s happened, he was so impressed by Tony Walton's set mm, that he included yeah. the set of, uh, uh, of Independence Hall right, right. in the drawing. That is a nice one. I like both of them. Oh, yeah. But, you know, many, he did the poster for Mayor the Musical mm-hmm. in 1985. Mm-hmm. But, of course, so many shows in the second half of the 20th century Definitely. had uh, political and certainly didactic content, right. uh, whether it was South Pacific, uh, you know, about racism or rent, mm-hmm. you know, which touches on so many different issues. Right. And then films, we also have the, the UA, the United Artists films. And sure. those also have a lot of times a political message. I'm thinking of Defiant Ones. Uh, Manchurian like, Candidate. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. Elmer Gantry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, those were all... Pretty powerful films yeah. uh, that um, had a, a, a real message to them. Mm-hmm. And, and really, they're called message movies. Right. Um, and Herschel didn't shy away from them and was equally good at drawing them as he was about drawing Victor Moore's vice president, Throttle Bottom, in <laughs> Of the Icing. Now, that's a S.J. Perlman name. Yes. <laughs> in this case, it was a George S. Kaufman okay, name. Okay, <laughs> close enough. That was close. Even for the unlikely casting series that Hirschfeld did in 64 and 65, he did use some politics in it. He, in uh, uh, one, uh, one month, he did LBJ and Goldwater in Waiting for Godot, That's which funny. is ridiculous. <laughs> and in the year before, for Famous Feuds, he did uh, Lenny Bruce and the Fuzz, mm. which, again, is not overtly political in the sense that it's a political figure, but Lenny Bruce was certainly uh, a political figure in the sense of his struggles with the First Amendment. I see, I see. So Hirschfeld believed that uh, you really had to be involved in politics, particularly as a young person, uh, and uh, that you should be uh, interested in the politics of your time. And as he got older, I think he felt that the world... You know, I, I, I think he may have felt that the world might not change uh, as quickly as he would like, but he clearly understood that uh, human nature was such that people would never stop trying. 
Right. And it was that kind of optimistic recognition that kept him current, even as he aged. Mm. You know, he understood people, which is uh, at the core of what he wanted. Uh, he told me he gave up political work because he wasn't comfortable picking the good guys and the bad guys. Right. You know, in, in many ways, it was constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, when he did the theater work, the playwrights picked the good guys and the bad guys. And he didn't have to worry about that. He could focus on the drawing. Right. Which, at the end of the day, was what he was most interested in. Mm-hmm. We hope you have learned a little something more about Hirschfeld and political happenings of the 20th century. Yes, uh, it, it, it's just one more prism that we can see Hirschfeld's mm-hmm. work through. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go on our, it, we'll have links, of course, to all these drawings in the show notes. You can also just go to our website, alhirschfeldfoundation.org. Go to the advanced search and under type, type in political and it will bring up uh, type in your favorite politician. You can type in your favorite politician <laughs> or you can just put in political and you'll yeah. see hundreds of uh, political drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, we sometimes post them on uh, our Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. uh, pages. Um, why don't you tell them where they can sure. find Sure. On Facebook, we're the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. And Instagram and Twitter, we are at Al Hirschfeld. Um, of course, I'm going to put all the uh, drawings in the show notes so you can follow along. But you can also find the podcast at alhirschfeldfoundation.org slash podcasts. That's with an S, and the S is for Stalin. <laughs> Do you hear that, Is there a better house? one? Is there a better <laughs> S? I'm thinking very quickly, and I can't come up. 1776. 1776. Right. There you go. All right, is for 1776. Um, so, yeah, we uh, would love to hear from you. Also, if you could rate and review us on iTunes or your podcasting app of your choice, we very much appreciate it. We like to read them, and it helps other people find the podcast, too. So tell your friends. <laughs> and if you have questions, uh, concerns, uh, corrections, um, or advice, mm-hmm. you can always write to us at info at alhirschfeldfoundation.org. Right. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Yep. Uh, well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll see you on the next uh, Hirschfeld Century podcast. Yes. Bye. Bye-bye.